Welcome back. Have you ever thought about turning your hobby into a side business? Maybe you draw, knit, or bake in your spare time, and friends and family are always telling you, hey, you should sell that. Starting a side gig can be a little more complex than just throwing together an Etsy page, and you may be worried that putting a price tag on your passion projects could make it a little less fun. Joining me to discuss the joys and challenges of turning your passion into a side business is Ruth Tam, co-host of WMU's Dish City Podcast and a former producer on this broadcast. She's also a freelance writer, artist, and podcast host. Ruth, good to talk to you. Kojo, thanks so much for having me. Ruth, we know you best as the host of Dish City, but you hosted another show recently, an episode of NPR's Life Kit, on the topic of turning your hobbies into a side hustle. Tell us, what is NPR's Life Kit? NPR's Life Kit is a podcast from NPR. Um, They explore common topics and questions that you know, listeners might have about life, anything from how to navigate a long distance relationship or how to save money strategically. It seems to start out, you know, the show started to, you know, it relied a lot on the expertise of NPR journalists and reporters. But um, since it's branched out to include voices outside the network, too, and that helps kind of explore different topics that you might not necessarily associate with public radio. You can find a link to Ruth's Life Kit episode on our website, kojoshow.org. Ruth, why did you want to produce a show on this topic? Um, It's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm still trying to navigate what it means to be a freelance writer and illustrator. I've had to pick up new skills while doing this, you know, budgeting, negotiating, managing a supply chain. You know, I, I would have loved to have a conversation like this when I first got started. I've always tried to, like, reach out for help and ask people about how they manage their small businesses, how they deal with time management and all these different little things when it comes to basically running a company by yourself. And um, yeah, I, I've had to do this and I was certain that other people had to navigate these questions too. So just wanted to make that that beginning step easier for more people. What type of freelance work do you do? Um, I have been a, an illustrator and a writer for, for a long time, just in addition to my, my full-time work as a podcast host and producer and, um, still trying to figure out how to, how to do it and how to fit it into my, to my work. Um, but that's kind of the two main things that I do. I, I draw and I write. The first big takeaway from this episode is that if you're going to start a side business, ask yourself, Why? So allow me to ask you that question. Why did you first start freelancing and how long have you been doing it? Um, I I guess I've been freelancing since maybe um, for the past 10 years. And I don't know if it was really a conscious decision to be like, okay, I'm going to be a freelancer. I would like to have a second job on the side. Um, It mostly came from a place of like, of not knowing quite what I wanted to do in life and not being able to focus on, you know, just one thing. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to the idea that, you know, their what they do for their full-time job isn't necessarily everything that they're capable of doing or necessarily all the things that they want to do. So freelancing for me was a way to um, give myself uh, space and room and time to explore all the things that I'm passionate about, um, you know, to build new skills in the the fields that I'm interested in, just outside of of my job and, and not associating making money and not associating my, you know, um, my job with that. So, you know, that just was kind of how I wanted to approach it. Joining us now is Megan Cassidy, the creator of Megan Bakes. Megan Cassidy, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. You are a data scientist by day, but in your spare time, you run Megan Bakes. Tell us, what do you do at Megan Bakes and why you first started it? Um, Megan Bakes is an Instagram account that I have that I started when I was um, teaching, actually, high school at the time. And I just really needed a creative outlet. And so I decided to, to post pictures of the cookies that I was making and decorating online. And... Um, this wonderful woman, Stacy Price at Shopmade in DC, invited me to do um, a pop-up at her shop with cookies. And uh, once I did that, I started getting all of these orders for cookies, and it was really exciting. I was so flattered that someone would want to buy uh, something that I made, and so I kept just saying yes to to everything that came my way. Um, and it quickly sort of took over my life for a year. Um, I was making cookies in every spare hour that I had. Um, but it opened a lot of really interesting doors and, and also challenges along the way. <laughs> Joining us also is Julie Zosmer, DC government reporter for the Washington Post. When she's not at the Post, you can find her working as a balloon twister under the name Balloons by Zippy. Julie Zosmer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Most of our listeners know you as a reporter for the Washington Post who's been on this broadcast at least a couple of times before. And by the way, I hear congratulations are in order. Even though you've been covering D.C. politics for months, it looks like you will be on the beat permanently. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm so glad I get to keep doing this for good. Yeah, well, how do you first get into balloon twisting? I've been making balloons a lot longer than I've been a reporter. I started when I was about eight years old and started working at parties in high school and college. Um, And once I moved to D.C. was when I really committed to making it a business. And uh, before the pandemic, it was something that I was really enjoying, working at parties every weekend, selling lots of big sculptures. Um, The pandemic has definitely... um, constrained my business, but I still make a lot of balloons for delivery. Yeah, the pandemic is constraining a lot of people's businesses. But before the pandemic, what type of balloon art did you do for clients around the D.C. area? All sorts of things. And some of my favorites are the really big projects. Sometimes I'll get together with other balloon twisters and we'll build something gigantic. Um, One of my favorite memories from the last couple of months of people being together in person, we did something out in Tyson's Corner with a whole bunch of us built a two or three story tall house entirely out of balloons that you could walk inside. It was great. Um, But most of what I do for my balloon work um, is birthday parties and carnivals and things like that where kids will line up and I'll make them whatever they ask me to make them. I've seen that website there. Some of those structures are amazing. Here is here is Cindy in Reston, Virginia. Cindy, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Um, I actually followed my dreams to start a business during the pandemic in June of this year that I actually just closed this last week because the hours got a little crazy with juggling a three-year-old and working 16 to 18-hour days in my home. Um, I was running a home-based gluten-free bakery that specialized in donuts and soft pretzels. <laughs> but you're saying that, that the the work just got to be too much for you, 16, 17 hours a day? Yes. I was running it out of my home. I was certified in Virginia to do it, and the orders were just too much for me to do on my own, and I didn't want to bring somebody into my home during a pandemic, so... I kind of decided for my mental health 
to just step back for a little bit and decided to close the business. I'm glad you brought that up because you experienced something similar to Megan Cassidy. How do you control your business when it seems to be getting out of hand, which is what seemed to happen with Cindy? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of reflection <laughs> that has to go into it and um a lot of difficult choices. Um I I started saying no more, which is a full sentence and hard for me to say a lot of times. And I really um, reflected on what I wanted to get out of it as well. Um, for me, I was very lucky that I was able to pivot careers um, from teaching to data science and to also, through Cookie Money, have, have paid off my student loans. And so once I had that more financial independence, um, I was able to really say, what, what do I want to get out of this for myself? And for me, it was um, teaching decorating classes. And so I really wanted to pivot my business to teaching other people how to decorate cookies and to share that joy with them. Um, but then the pandemic hit. And so doing mm. in-person gatherings and classes is is clearly not an option right now, but that's something that I would like to get back to in the future. So, um, But it, it took me a long while to get to that place to be able to to say no and take ownership of it myself. Cindy, when you get a little rest, is this something that you will think about restarting again? I'm not sure. I um, For now, I'm going to kind of take a step back and um, follow another passion of mine into gardening. I'm starting part-time at a local Montessori school, teaching children how to plant their own vegetables and, you know, learn how to live a more farm-to-table life, which is, which is something that I kind of strive to do in my own life, so... Okay, thank you very much, and good luck to you in the future, Cindy. Get yourself some rest. Here is Cecile in Alexandria, Virginia. Cecile, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thanks, Kojo, for taking my call. Um, my mom taught me how to sew when I was seven, and she was a, an avid quilter for the local church groups. <clears throat> and she taught me quite young. And during the pandemic, um, I was working full-time, but my husband and I decided to start our own business, providing quilt services, quilting services for other quilters. So we take the tops that other people sew, and to make a quilt, you use the top, a batting in the middle, and then a backing. That's the part that lays against the bed or against you when you're under it. And um, it's it's been a terrific thing for the two of us to do, even though we were working full-time during the pandemic. And how has it been business-wise for you so far? Well, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people on Facebook. My husband decided to name the business when I asked him if he wanted it, if, you know, when I was telling him about this process. Um, I mean, he's known that I've quilted forever and he asked me why I didn't do it. And I said, well, it's very, it's very computer oriented. It's a very expensive machine. The machine costs more than my Miata and it's, um, it's computer assisted design. And so he he said, oh, I could do that. And so (laughs) he named it drunkard's path quilting because he was having a few beers when he was, um, how, how are you handling the business side of it? Oh, it's going well. Um, okay. We've gotten uh, customers. Uh, we put up a website, and um, right now it's cu- uh, word of mouth, and then um, people look us up on Google for okay. Drunkard's Path Quilting. 
Thank you very much for your call, Ruth Tan. That's one of the biggest hurdles uh, in making your own side huddle, and that is figuring out the business side. What should people starting a side gig keep in mind about the finances and things like setting their own prices? This is like (laughs) the most (laughs) uncomfortable part, I think, about freelancing and making something that you love into basically a commodity. And it's a really difficult and unique question. And I just want to say that if you're struggling with it, like you're absolutely not alone. Um, But I think the framing that really helped me think about the value of the things that I do and the products I create early on was this idea of okay, who is, you know, if I'm making an illustration or I'm writing an essay or whatever it is, like, who is this for? How many people are going to be seeing it? Um, How is it going to be used? Um, And who benefits from my work? I think there's a huge, you know, disparity between if you're doing like a, a commissioned portrait for, you know, a family and, you know, a portrait is going to be hanging up in their living room and it's kind of for private consumption. And, you know, the difference between that and making an illustration that's like part of like a company brand or a logo that's part of making money for them, you know, there's a difference in, in those two things. And you would price for those two things differently, even if the labor going into it is the exact same and the time that you're putting it is the same and the materials that you're putting into it is the same. Um, you know, the audiences are different. And so you should price differently for those two scenarios. And that's not something that I think I would have learned about if I hadn't read about freelance artists and their relationship with work and, and money before I started getting into it. Julie Zazma, how do you approach pricing the different projects you do? Yeah, I think Ruth's advice is fantastic. And I would add that knowing other people in the business that you're in is very, very helpful to have conversations about those hard situations that you get into where you think something is worth something, a client thinks it's worth something else. How can you get to a point where you can make people happy, which is what I think all of us with cookies and art and balloons, we're all in the business of making products and art that people delight in. Um, how can you, you know, keep that delight for yourself and the client without feeling like, you know, you're, you're, you're undervaluing your work. Um, and it's really, really helpful to have peers and colleagues who you can discuss those situations with. Megan Cassidy, how did you go about setting prices for your work? Oh, I, I hard plus one everything everyone's just said. Um, I had a lot of trouble with this in the beginning. Um, I was definitely not charging enough for my labor because I was like, this is my hobby. It makes me really happy. It gives me joy. Why would I make someone pay for this part? That's fun for me. Um, and so I definitely, um, I asked my peers, I would literally hold up cookies and say, how much would you pay for this (laughs) to, to friends? Um, I also looked, um, at other cookie makers in urban areas and saw what they were charging, um, for different types of client work and also would would one-on-one work with clients to see kind of what their budget was and what was possible. Here now is Nasua in Reston, Virginia. Nasua, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. Love your show. Uh, my name is Najwa, and oh, I have a, an entrepreneurial business called The Cultured Blossom. And I have always had a passion for flowers. And as far as I got over the last few years, I made a business card through Vistaprint, and that felt scary. And then I had a kind of website light, and based on that uh, and uh, my providing some unique arrangements for neighbors, the business has picked up a little bit by word of mouth. Um, 
I echo everything these people have been saying about pricing. By the time I procure the flowers, make the little trips, do the delivery, um, I, I have trouble holding myself back from the vision I have for each of the um, arrangements. And I have my own uh, kind of sustainability model where people can use my gorgeous uh, eclectic containers which I've collected over the years, or they can use a container for keeps. So um, people have a choice. It's a very different kind of business than going online or going into a shop. Um, and pricing is the most challenging part for sure. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. That's exactly what we were talking about, Ruth Tam. Making extra income also means paying taxes, Ruth. What's your advice on navigating that side of things? Um, you should pay them. <laughs> um, I saw a joke tweet um, today that said, oh, the best thing about freelancing is that you don't have to pay taxes. Of course, you have to pay taxes. And They'll that find gets you. At. <laughs> yeah, and um, pay them. And in order to pay them, you're going to need to keep track of you know, all the money coming in and all the money going out dedicated to your business. One of the tips that... Um, You know, I learned from a finance expert while I was doing the Life Kit show was, you know, it really helps to have a separate, you know, credit or debit card, separate bank accounts for your business. And you may not think, you know, oh, I don't need this because this is not a big deal yet. Um, that's, you know, I can understand that. I don't think I've ever, I haven't thought about that myself because I was like, oh, I haven't reached this threshold where I'm like making so much money that I need to like put it aside in a separate account. But it's not really, it's mostly about bookkeeping and knowing where your money is so that when you have to fill out your forms for taxes, um, that you, it's all in one place. You don't have to go scoop, scoop it out of your, your personal finances. Uh, so yeah, pay your taxes, keep track of your finances. Um, that will, will get you a long way. <laughs> Here is Jesse in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Jesse, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thank you for having me. Go right ahead, Jesse. Hi, um, I just love to create things and to share them with um, with everyone that I can. And I started about 10 years ago having my own business and I started an Etsy page and I'm able to sell some of my creations in shops here in Shepherdstown. And how's that working out for you? Um, it helps provide me with some extra income to fund my, uh, my um, creative Uh, outlet. Um, it's not enough to, you know, survive on, but it, it helps fund the hobby. Has it changed during the course of the pandemic? Are you doing more or less? Um, it has. Um, when the pandemic first started, I organized a mask effort in my county, uh, well, actually in the Eastern Panhandle. And um, I was coordinating volunteers and distributing masks to um, local health care facilities and things that needed them. And once that died down, um, then I was able to start making masks and selling them locally. Okay, thank you very much for your call. A lot of people have been doing that since the pandemic. That's just people who can sew their making and selling masks. Julie Zosma, we talked about there being a community of balloon twisters, but there was one particularly special project you worked on. Tell us about Deborah Fellman from Richmond, Virginia, and the project you did with her. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, Debs was a friend of mine in the balloon community um, who died of cancer a couple years ago. Um, and she 
wanted to have one last balloon build and she had an absolutely beautiful build that she hosted in Richmond for her balloon friends from all over the country. People came from near and far and we got together and we spent a couple of days with Debs and we built a huge balloon garden in the atrium of a mall in Richmond uh, so the public could come visit. And it was just gorgeous. It was filled with flowers and animals and it was a really, really special tribute to her. We got an email from Jan who said, I find it hard to create my craft items, paper crafts and decorated apparel for people I don't know. When I know who it's for, I think of that person, what they like, their favorite colors. When I don't know, I just can't envision it as well. Is that something you experience, Ruth Dan? Um, I do a lot of commissions. So, you know, I actually don't do a ton of work that's just like, for the general public, uh, in terms of, you know, art. So, okay. you know, I, I don't have that problem, but that that's something that I can understand is, is complicated. So I either make it for myself or I make it for a specific person. And hopefully when the, the things I make for myself, like other people respond to that too. But, um, yeah, I, I can understand why that's difficult. Here's Dawn in DC. Dawn, your turn. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, Kojo. Um, so I used to volunteer teaching financial literacy some time ago, and I loved it so much, and especially teaching it in low-income communities. Given my background, I felt like I needed to give back in that area coming from a low-income family myself. And I turned my passion project into a full-time business. I contract with nonprofits teaching financial literacy. I got certification, and I'm also, also a full-time financial planner with my own registered uh, financial planning firm in Washington, D.C. called Mabry Consulting. When did you go from volunteering to actually making this a business? <sighs> so I think about in the financial literacy space, I got my first paying uh, contract in the financial literacy space about two years ago. And it's okay. a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. that works with women who are in transition um, in terms of finding housing. Has anything changed for you since the pandemic? Um, not well, really. <laughs> no, no, not really. I'm still okay. doing the work. Thankfully, okay. there are more services that the women need um, given the pandemic. But for me personally, um, no, but for my clients, yes. And I'm afraid we're almost out of time. But uh, Megan Casty, just quickly, baking and selling food made at home seems a bit tricky. Usually there are specific regulations that restaurants or food manufacturing facilities have to follow. What rules do you have to keep in mind when you're selling cookies or cookie-making kits that you create in your house? Yeah, there's there's a lot of rules, and they vary state to state. So you want to make sure you check out what the cottage food guidelines are um, in your state, and it varies um, across the country, um, usually it involves also labeling your food and what, and every ingredient that's in there. Um, if you're a home, a home cook, it involves, um, getting your home kitchen certified as well, or cooking out of a certified kitchen. So with food products, there's an extra 
layer there than just um, putting it up on Etsy. <laughs> Got it. Megan Cassidy, Julie Zosma, Ruth Tam, thank you all for joining us. Today's segment with CNN's Abby Phillip was produced by Kurt Gardner, and our segment on side gigs was produced by Sydney Grannon. Coming up tomorrow in 2015, writer Tanahasi Coates' Atlantic cover story, The Case for Reparations, started a national conversation and was named the top work of journalism of the decade. The award-winning author of Between the World and Me, The Beautiful Struggle and The Water Dancer joins us tomorrow. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. The Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Granin, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Ines Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstor. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.